Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteous. Welcome, dear Cradio listeners, to another jam-packed episode of Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteous. Now, as your faithful host, you have with us Jeremy Ambrose. Hello, everyone. And myself, Javina Graham. Now, I'm not sure if how jam-packed this episode is going to be, but it looks like we've got a lot of questions for you today, Bishop Julian. And what we're Good. focusing today... Yep, you're ready. Good. What we're focusing on today is the liturgical changes that have taken place in the Mass, and I, I suppose other liturgies, since the Second Vatican Council. So as you can see, this is no small topic, but I know you'll do your best to tackle our questions. Can I ask, start by just asking what are the most obvious, most evident liturgical changes that we've seen for ordinary lay Catholics? Well, I think the, the first thing to say is that the Second Vatican Council, which we're just celebrating the 50th anniversary of, of its opening, its very first document was a document on the liturgy, and so for many Catholics, I think the impact of the Council was felt most decidedly in the area of, uh, of the liturgy. I think for many people too, um, there may be a sense that the Vatican Council, uh, the Fathers all came together and they said, no, we've got to change all the liturgy around, as though it was something, something which was quite sudden and, and just a decision that the that they made on the spot, if you like, mm. uh, in the moment of the council. However, really, it would be more true to say that the uh, changes in the liturgy in the Second Vatican Council were really the outworking of a whole range of things uh, that had taken place almost for a century uh, leading up to it. There was what's called the liturgical movement that um, began to... Um, re-examined the liturgy of the church, partly because the church, after the Protestant Reformation and the, the Council of Trent, had to a large extent locked down, and certainly locked down the liturgy, whereas liturgy has always been a dynamic thing. There's always been change in the liturgy over the centuries, but it, it had become quite fixed, and, and many people felt it couldn't change and there were need for some changes to be brought in and and so for instance the popes of the um, of the 20th century many of them made contributions to um, sorry the 19th and 20th century made contributions to this question popes uh, Pius X 11th and 12th all made statements about liturgy all made contributions to re-examining aspects of, of the liturgy. One of the interesting things is that, um, for instance, a number of the popes uh, promoted the use of Gregorian chant. Now, we would probably say, well, that's obviously wanting to go back and restore the more ancient traditions of the church in, 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 uh, with regard to Gregorian chant. However, the reason that they wanted to promote it was because... They wanted to help people be able to participate more fully in the liturgy. As you know, some of the grand masses, the Mozart masses and the great Requiem masses that were produced in earlier centuries, 
ran the risk of the liturgy turning into a bit of a concert, really. Mm. Uh, beautiful, um, but it really meant people went more just to to listen, to take it all in. That, I mean, it was beautiful, it was ennobling and so forth. Um, but the popes were concerned to say, no, we really need to encourage the people to be involved. And this word of active participation, which became a key word used at the Second Vatican Council, but its origin was beforehand. It was actually in relation to music, to say, can we have music that's more accessible to the people? Maybe today uh, we don't feel that Gregorian chant is necessarily ex uh, accessible, but uh, certainly it was in terms of people being able to sing along, sing, sing the, the Kyrie eleisons and, and, and so forth in, in Gregorian chant. So I think it's important for us to realise that, that the changes that have occurred in the uh, Second Vatican Council were really the fruit of a movement which was in one sense, wanting to help people participate more fully in the, the celebration of, of the Eucharist. Well, if you don't mind, Bishop Julian, let's go through quite a few things and, and see you know, if you can explain to us <laughs> the changes here. Starting with the use of the vernacular. Why is it that it seems Latin was dropped altogether at one point and then all of a sudden we are all celebrating Mass in, in our own languages? That was um, one of the changes that was most striking for, for people of the, of the period because Catholics had grown up uh, with the Mass always being in Latin and um, people would have their missals which would have uh, Latin on one side of the page and English translation on the other. But it was, it was always sort of felt that the Mass has always been in Latin. Uh, but of course, to begin with, the, the, the Mass was originally in Greek. The, the, the very first Christians had Greek as their language. Mm. But at the same time, the Church was aware that uh, there was a need, this, this need to help people participate and engage more effectively with the liturgy. So it was proposed that, uh, that the vernacular be available. It was never proposed that the vernacular replace the, the Latin, but there would be masses celebrated in Latin and, uh, and also in the vernacular language. And in fact, early in the piece, it was, it was required that there would always be a mass in Latin on a Sunday. However, particularly in the Western world, it, um, it, it just was, a, was washed right across the way in which the Mass was celebrated and, and people um, <clears throat> very quickly embraced the idea of, of using the um, vernacular language for the liturgy. So it really was one of the very big changes that, um, that uh, the people experienced. However, it was never the mind of the Church that Latin be completely dropped. In fact, the normative texts for the liturgy are, are, are in Latin and, and they're always the basic text. And if anything, uh, at this moment, 50 years on after the Second Vatican Council, I think we're in a better place now to bring back a bit more Latin. And, and, and I know there are many, uh, many young people who have never known the, the Mass other than in English, mm -hmm. rather than in the vernacular language, who feel drawn to have uh, the Latin language mm -hmm. somehow incorporated, not completely, but to have elements of Latin uh, in the uh, in the liturgy, 
And that certainly is more faithful to the mind of the church. So I would say that um, a Catholic today really would would need to see that there are two basic languages for liturgy. There is their own vernacular language and there is a Latin. And if anything, it would be good if Catholics develop a greater facility with Latin. So we could preserve that tradition of using Latin. It's always been understood to be the language of the Church's liturgy. And I think we're seeing a, a slow restoration of that awareness in, uh, in people today. So I think that this change uh, was something which the Vatican Council um, mandated, but it never, never meant to displace Latin completely in the liturgy. Bishop, if, for the next question, if I may shift from linguistics to, I guess, geography, um, what about the position of the altar? So that's that, as we know, the table that is on the sanctuary where the um, consecration is made. That seems to have moved pre Vatican, Second Vatican Council and post Second Vatican Council. Yes, it was one of the uh, changes too that was most striking for um, uh, for parishioners when the uh, council was uh, implemented. The, the movement, moving of the altar was a very, uh, very interesting, very curious thing in a way. Maybe we could illustrate it by, by the fact, by saying that, and certainly when you look at many of the older churches in, in say, Sydney or in different parts of Australia, you would see that there was a, a main altar would be up against the back wall of the church and it would be fixed to the back wall uh, in most cases. And that expressed the idea that the um, priest would celebrate the Mass facing the altar, uh, often people say, with his back to the people. And uh, in the centre of that um, altar was a tabernacle. And so the priest, in one sense, celebrated Mass directly facing the tabernacle in the centre of, of the altar. However, just a little thing, just while we're, we're probably familiar with that as we think about the... Um, the, the, the churches that we know, the older churches in our own country, it's worth thinking for a moment, what about the altar in St Peter's Basilica in Rome? Is it against the back wall? Well, no, and I don't think it no. ever has been. And it never has been. It is actually there, as you know, a very prominent place in the, the centre of St Peter's Basilica with a glorious Baltacino over it and, and so on. That's and when we think that that was built in the uh, I think the 15th 16th centuries, so we can ask ourselves, well, what happened? What? Why is it that the, the the central church of Christendom has an altar in the the centre, a freestanding altar in the centre, whereas most parish churches were were built with an altar right against, hard against the back wall of the church? Now. A lot of that has to do with the, um, the, the, the tabernacle. There was um, a time when the tabernacle was in the, um, in the church, in, in the, in the um, sanctuary area, but a separate uh, place. But it seemed that over the, the centuries, there was a creeping tendency to bring the, the tabernacle onto the, um, onto the altar place on the altar before it was separate to, but then it moved to the altar. And with the tabernacle come on, coming on the altar, 
there was there was just this tendency then to move the the altar back against the back wall. So you had the altar and the tabernacle really at the centre of the church, if you like, in, in terms of looking directly directly at it. What the Vatican Council um, decreed it was very very simple. It, they just just made the just made the statement that the altar should be freestanding so that the priest or the, the celebrant is able to move around the altar to incense the altar. So the altar should be a, a separate freestanding um, structure in the, in the sanctuary. Um, if you like, it's restoring an altar to being an actual altar so the priest can move around the altar. And, and so that's why we saw many of the uh, altars then after the Second Vatican Council move forward. We always see in uh, many of the older churches various efforts to do that. Sometimes it's difficult because there's not enough space in the front of the altar to, to put a freestanding altar uh, without, uh, while still preserving the, the back altar. So that's created a lot of architectural challenges for the church. But of course, another thing happened that was very, very curious. Nowhere in the documents of the Second Vatican Council did it say that the priest should change from uh, addressing, uh, celebrating the Mass, facing the, the altar in, in, in the olden way, facing the, the tabernacle, so with, the, as we often say, the back to the people. That was um, not in any way spoken about in the documents that the priest should change really? to face the people. Um, so it was a it was a curious thing. It, it seemed that it, um, now that the altar was moved forward, now that we're talking about the vernacular and, and a dialogue between the priest and the people, so the people were answering the questions, now that uh, there was a, a sense of promoting the active participation of the people in the Mass, that there was this, um, this I, I suppose people just thought, well, Let's face the people. So we can engage with the people in the dialogue. We can encourage active participation. We can, um, we, we can be in a sense of a better communication with the people. But that was never specifically referred to in the, um, the documents of the Second Vatican Council, but it became one of the particular um, effects of what was being mandated by the council. And after a number of years in some of the documents, there was recognition of it and, and various things related to, to the priest doing that. So it was kind of authenticated, if you like, in documents. But it wasn't actually specific teaching of the Second Vatican Council. It raises another very interesting issue. Why was it that the priest faced... The altar in the old, in the, if you like, in the old mass, and um, as people often describe today, had his back to the people. It would seem that he's cut himself off from the people. It seems that um, the mass is a bit more private because often um, he would just be saying the prayers, and often he'd say the prayers quietly so people couldn't hear them or couldn't engage with them. That's why we had the bells ring so that people would know when key moments are happening in the mass. Mm -hmm. So. Um, why, why did the church have the practice of the priest um, facing away from the people in celebration of Mass? 
The reason is very simple in the end. It was because from ancient tradition, the practice was to build churches facing east as a, as a basic orientation for the church. And the whole idea was that the east stood for the rising sun, which was a, an expression of the resurrection of Christ. So there was, a, and also it was facing east was a sense too of facing the direction from which the Lord will come back in glory. And there was always a sense that the people and the priest would be united in the one act of, if you like, facing the risen Christ, awaiting the return of the, of the glorious coming of Christ, and we would be united in this one act. This act of worship would be directed towards the risen Christ, would be directed towards the East. Um, in some churches, um, probably for practical reasons, the church was the opposite way around, was was uh, west-facing. In that case, the priest would, would, would face east. In that case, he'd actually face, he would be in the same direction as the, or he'd be facing the people. But when it came to the Eucharistic prayer, normally the priest would invite the congregation to all turn and face the east, so it wouldn't be facing him. So, so he'd be at the back. So he would be at the back of the people, but be united in the one direction. That's a tradition that's come down from ancient times. It was very strong for many, many centuries. But of course, over time, through all sorts of circumstances, the whole idea of the east was lost a little bit, and sometimes churches were north-south, and churches were, were built according to circumstances that didn't allow them to face east. But the, the ancient tradition of everybody facing the one direction towards the risen Christ um, was something that carried on, and that's why the priests faced that uh, particular direction and the people were united in that direction. So it's a rather curious and interesting history um, of why that developed in the church and the fact that the changes took place um, quite uh, almost kind of just because of a whole series of circumstances that led to these changes which weren't specifically mandated uh, in the Second Vatican documents of the Second Vatican Council. Hmm. Thank you, Bishop Julian, for exploring such um, the, helping us to explore the rich history of our church. Can I just finish by asking what the name of the document is? That Sacro Sanctum Concilium. Good. All right. We'll get sacred, on to that. The Sacred Council. So it's it's um, it was the first document produced by the fathers of the Second Vatican Council, and um, it has had such a profound influence upon. Uh, upon us as Catholics because, as we often say, lex orandi, lex credendi, which is a little adage which means the way that we pray is the way that we believe. And so liturgy always has um, a, a very important formative influence on the people. And if I could add by way of a postscript, those who today would say they would like to celebrate the Mass with the priest and people facing the one direct and facing east, which you often hear as ad orientem, facing the east. Um, there's no reason why they can't do that because that was never outlawed or, or ever removed from the church at the Second Vatican Council. So that is quite a legitimate way to celebrate Mass, um, as well as the way that we most commonly pray Mass, say Mass today, with the priest uh, engaging with the people directly. Wonderful. And as we all know, in this year of faith, we're encouraged to read the documents of the Second Vatican Council. So perhaps we can all delve into Sacrosanctum Concilium. Thank you very much, Bishop Julian, for another interesting 
and enlightening Q&A. Uh, Jeremy, uh, we were talking some episodes ago about um, the role of the deacon in the, uh, in the church. We That's talked right. about the permanent diaconate. Uh-huh. And I just thought for this little um, did you know session, um, I'm sure you've been at a mass where you've seen a deacon participate in carrying out his role as a deacon. Yes. What if you noticed what particular roles the deacon has in the, in the, the liturgy? Well, does he proclaim the gospel? That's one thing he does. That's his very special role. When mm-hmm. he's, when he, when a deacon is on the altar, he is. That is his specific task to proclaim the gospel. Does he tell everyone to go in peace and proclaim the gospel? That's correct. The other thing he does is he gives particular instructions during the liturgy. So he can do in in in, in uh, some liturgies he might say, "Let us stand, let us kneel, let us," uh, mm-hmm. and so on. He, he said, let us give each other the sign of peace. Um, so these, so the deacon is there, and really, if you like, in a pontifical liturgy, when you have a bishop, you really always should have a, a deacon because it's a way of delineating very clearly the fact that, that the deacon has some quite specific roles, and particularly deacons have traditionally always been seen as being assistants to a bishop. So often you'll see in the liturgy the deacon sitting next to the to the, to the bishop, whereas the priest will, might be sitting over on the side, you know, so all those priests who can celebrating, are celebrating, but the deacon sits right next to the bishop mm-hmm. because he has a very particular role to play in the liturgy. Wow. You learn something new every day. Thank you, Bishop Julian, and we'll, we'll see you all next time on Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteous. You've been listening to Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteous. For more episodes, visit radio.com.